is the NT Country Hour on ABC Radio Darwin and the Northern Territory. G'day there, my name is Matt Brand, welcome to the program. Our guest on the Country Hour today is Luke Bowen, who has just been announced as the inaugural Chief Executive of Cattle Australia. Now, if you're in the beef industry and have a question for the new boss, send it through now on 0487 991057. Also today, you'll hear from the boss of Wellard, who says if cattle producers are hanging on to stock in the hopes of getting $5.50 a kilo again, well, they're dreaming. Quite simply, uh, $5 plus is just not sustainable for anyone in the export live export industry. So we're looking for a trend change. The price of crocodile eggs is on the up. What is driving this? You'll find out today before 1.30. And as always, we'll be speaking to the Weather Bureau at five past one. There is an initial minor flood warning in place for the Catherine River. As we go to where? And just checking out River Cam via the Catherine Town Council. The Catherine River there at the main bridge looks like it's sitting at about 11 metres as we go to air this afternoon. We're broadcasting right across the Territory on the ABC and g'day to those tuning in via the podcast. Luke Bowen has been appointed as the first Chief Executive of Cattle Australia, which is the new peak body for the nation's grass-fed cattle industry. Luke is well known to the Country Hour audience. He is, of course, the former Chief Executive of the NT Cattlemen's Association and in recent times has been the head of agriculture, fisheries and biosecurity with the Territory Government. Welcome to the Country Hour, Luke. Well done on the job. And I guess for those who aren't in the cattle industry, what is Cattle Australia? G'day, Matt. Um, Cattle Australia. So it's the peak body uh, that was formed in November last year through um, a democratically elected board uh, that's now in place to represent the cattle industry at the national level. So it's simple as that. So it's the member, member-driven, industry-driven body. Uh, it's the, the um, restructure of Cattle Council of Australia, who a lot of listeners probably would be familiar with, yeah. which was the peak body for the cattle industry. Um, it's been through a restructure process, and now we have Cattle Australia. Why does the grass-fed cattle industry need this? So, Matt, if you look at the numbers, uh, 30% of Australia's agricultural production is from the beef industry. Uh, the beef industry, cattle industry, manages about 45% of Australia's land mass. Um, this is our biggest export industry, um, and it's a major player, a major uh, foundation of our agricultural sector. Um, it in- underpins a lot of our economy, but also underpins employment, uh, regional and remote locations. It is well, it's part of the fabric of this nation. Cattle Council of Australia, the predecessor, basically was run on a shoestring budget, barely had any staff, and that caused all kinds of problems. How is Cattle Australia different? Well, I think what we have to have in a national organisation like that is an organisation that's effective uh, and can have influence, um, but fundamentally needs to be tuned into its members and the industry. Um, so It would need more funding too, yes? Do you have more dollars at your disposal? Well, of, of course. And I'm not in the job yet, Matt, so I'm going to leave that for later on okay. to talk about that. But clearly, um, it's fundamentally there to advocate for the industry. Um, and, and I think, like any organisation that does that well, I think things will flow from there. Uh, there are a few big topics in particular that you know you'll need to get in and tackle first? Yeah, and look, the, the board is very um, uh, a very 
high capacity board that's been appointed from around Australia. Um, and that's, that's a, an incredibly powerful start for this organisation. Uh, it also has a policy council, which um, will um, evolve into a directly elected policy council, which is made up of representatives from around the country, but also uh, state farm organisations will be involved in that policy council. So that is the engine room in relation to what is important for the industry. Um, to put forward and what to prioritise, what to advocate for. Um, so that'll be the engine room um, and driven by a very, very focused, very powerful, uh, very effective board. Yeah. A, a board that is impressive, no doubt, but a board that is mostly male, just the one female. Do you feel that's an issue going forward for, a, for an organisation that's meant to be modern and representing the entire cattle industry? The, the board's going to be refreshed every, every year, so there's a process in the Constitution of doing that. So right. certainly um, we know the role women play in, in, in industry, um, and they're right in the middle of it all, and uh, we know that. And certainly uh, the territories have demonstrated the role of women in the agricultural sector. Uh, it's undeniable. So, I mean, this is a, a process of continual renewal in relation to the board, so there's, the Constitution's been set up that way. Um, so I expect we'll be seeing a lot of women lining up for the board. I asked you about some topics that you'll need to tackle first. You told me about how good the board is, but yeah, what about topics, issues you'll need to tackle? Well, I think I'll take direction uh, from the board and the policy council, clearly. I'm okay. not in the job yet. I've got plenty to do in this current job. We've got a lot of challenges with biosecurity and um, a number of other things. So, uh, But I'll be taking direction and, and my, my mission will be set by uh, the priorities that the board and the policy council uh, establish. It's been, I think it's fair to say, a bit of a rocky road to get to this point for Cattle Australia. Is this organisation still facing legal challenges? Um, I can't comment on that, but I, I, uh, so I'll, I'll abstain from making any comment on that. Uh, but I think we've got a positive way forward from what I understand. Okay. What are you most excited about in this gig? Oh, look, this is in my DNA, Matt. Um, I love this stuff. Uh, and it's, it's, um, uh, it's just, I don't know, it's just... It just really You're back. Fills, yeah. Some, someone right. in the industry thought I should either play, you know, regal music or welcome back Cotter to introduce <laughs> you today. You're back in no, it. It does feel nice. It really does feel nice, Matt. Not, look, at the end of the day, I love this industry and, and even working in government, I've been a very strong advocate for industry and that's why the job I currently do is all about industry and, um, and we wouldn't be there if we didn't have an industry. So this is just an extension of that. Um, I'm passionate about agriculture, I'm passionate about the cattle industry um, and quite frankly I couldn't think of a better place to land. Well you start that new role on April 17 so I'm sure we'll talk more then. If we can... Put your current hat on as Head of Agriculture, Fisheries and Biosecurity with the Territory Government. What can you tell us about Exercise Tread 3? So, Matt, I think most of the people listening would be well aware of the fact that we've had a lot of biosecurity um, incursions into the Territory and the, the country as a whole. We're currently fighting some banana freckle and incursion, um, so we're trying to eliminate that at the moment, and a number of other things. But what happened last year was, um, I think, the thing that people have you know, really keeps people awake at night is a major emergency animal disease um, and we had foot and mouth uh, come into Indonesia um, and that got everybody's attention. It's always been part of national thinking and, and local thinking about emergency response to diseases like that but what it means is it's getting it's closer and it's the threat is present and real uh, and lumpy skin also which is of particular concern because of the um, it's a vector-borne disease. Both of those are in Indonesia and Southeast Asia and lots of other parts of the, the world quite frankly um, and our ability to trade as a country um, to export our products is entirely dependent upon us being free of these sorts of diseases. So we could have one case of one of those two diseases and if it was foot and mouth anywhere in the country and that would shut down every 
um, industry that is exporting dairy, lamb, beef, live animals like that overnight. So clearly we trade with a lot of countries. 70% of our production goes overseas. Uh, we have a relatively small population, so trade is fundamental to our existence and our prosperity of our industries. So we need to keep these diseases out. If we did happen to, the unfortunate thing happened, we did get a disease in this country like that, we have to get rid of it as quickly as humanly possible. And act quickly. So that's what exercise tread three is about? So we have to practice. Um, and so what, what we're what we're doing is we're putting in place some training. Um, there's a couple of different events starting this Friday with a, an open webinar for people who are interested in understanding how emergency response operates, both locally and nationally. Um, and then we're having two workshops in Alice Springs and Darwin, which are training workshops effectively to give people an understanding of the sort of role that they would be in should they have to res- be part of an emergency response. These are pastoralist farmers, you know, truck drivers, stock agents, whoever it might be, yep. who might be mobilised to come into emergency response centres. And then on the, between the 7th and the 9th of March, we're having an exercise, a three-day exercise. This will be our scenario, which nobody knows what it looks like. Yep. Um, and it'll it'll evolve and it'll move and it will be um, a rolling a rolling. You sort of play out uh, a mock outbreak in real time. Absolutely. And what it's what, what could that look like for not only the industry but the average punter on the street when this happens? Well, we don't know what it could look like because it's, these are, these are random scenarios that will play out because we know that stock move incredibly quickly on trucks and various things. So the speed of identifying the disease in the first case can be the difference between something spreading over the whole country versus being confined to a particular geographic area. So we could, for example, see outbreaks in different under this scenario, because I'll just stress there is no yep. no disease in this country, right? So um, this is a This scenario, is all mock scenario. Mock scenario. Yep. Um, so we could see outbreaks in different parts of the territory. Uh, and so you might people might see uh, people in hazmat suits uh, at different locations. You might have roadblocks. You might have the police uh, blocking roads, those sorts of things. Because in, a, um, in an emergency response, uh, a 72-hour stock standstill is generally one of the first things that happens, which ena- enables people to trace backwards for up to two weeks, movements in those previous two weeks. If I, pe- if I was running a cattle station and planning to ship cattle up to Darwin, should I avoid these dates? I don't think so. I think business we keep rolling business as usual. Okay. But what will happen is there will be people who will be involved in this exercise, cattle stations, export yards, operators who all of a sudden find themselves in the middle of um, uh, an active um, exercise and so for yourself Matt you're on a station out in a particular location you suddenly get a call and say uh, Matt we think that there could have been an animal that was infected animals entered your property uh, we need you to trace back for two weeks every human being and every piece of equipment and every animal that's come onto your uh, station and you go right how do I do that yeah well, some people <laughs> might go I'm onto that other people might stutter and go, oh, yeah. maybe I should get a better biosecurity plan in place. And so this is really about working out mm-hmm. what we're not good at um, and see whether we're match fit. And it's not just the agriculture departments um, in, the, in the territory and, and federally and industry that work on this. This is then the broader emergency response um, community in the territory. So the, um, the Commissioner of Police, who is the Territory Controller, would take take command of the, the exercise um, and we'll use the control centre in at uh, Berrimah, Peter McCauley Centre as the emergency response centre and we'll have all the functional groups from across government as well as industry who will be in that in that operation centre. Okay, so this mock scenario happen, happening between the 7th and 9th of March. I do have a question here for you, Luke, with this new gig with Cattle Australia, will you be staying in the Northern Territory and living in Darwin? Um, good question. No. Um, simply, no. Uh, it will be interstate. Moving but, to... 
Well, it's the, the head office is currently in Canberra, oh. um, but we, the the organisation currently has, is some, a little bit decentralised, so we'll, we'll remain flexible about that. But the um, the head office is in Canberra. How are you feeling about that? Uh, well, I may or may not end up in Canberra, but um, we'll, we'll remain flexible around that this stage anyway, Matt. Okay, well, well done on the job. That starts on April 17, so we'll, we'll talk again soon, I am sure. Thanks for coming into the studio. I was just going to say that the, the important thing is in this new role, I'll be very much embedded in what's happening in the Territory, so I'm, I'm still very much part of the scene. Uh, at the end of the day, industry in Northern Australia will be fundamental to the success of Cattle Australia and the industry more broadly. So I'll have a very deep an enduring interest uh, in the Northern Territory. And I don't think people, uh, can ex- people can expect to see a lot of me. Good to see you. Luke Bowen, who is the head of Agriculture, Fisheries and Biosecurity with the Territory Government and news out today that he has been appointed as the first ever Chief Executive of Cattle Australia. G'day, this is John Little here. I'm from Ilzajari Outstation out on the Ernest Giles and you're listening to the ABC Country Hour. It is 17 to 1 from the real cattle industry to the plant-based industry. I'm sure you've heard news by now that the plant-based meat manufacturer, V2 Food, has had to close its $20 million factory there at Wodonga. I think the doors are still open, but the plan is definitely to shut it. Well, this company has now spoken to the Country Hour. So this factory had opened a few years ago, but the company says changing markets and cheap imports were the reason behind the closure. Warwick Long has spoken to the new chief executive, Tim York, about V2 Foods' plans from here. So we're looking to expand further into Asia and the UK, and as part of that, we've really been reassessing what our supply chain needs to be to support that business. Um, The Wodonga site was originally set up to be a single supply point for some specific ingredients which were not at the time available in the Australian market. And the intention at that time was that that would then support our business as we grew globally. However, what we've learned over the last three years is some of those ingredients are now more readily available in global markets. And particularly with things like COVID, we've understood the sort of the impact of trying to support a global business from Australia and felt that it was more prudent that we would set up a more um, decentralised supply chain model where we would source um, ingredients for overseas markets in overseas markets. Yeah, so rather than controlling, I suppose, the the manufacturer of these products yourself, you're now moving away to to sort of purchasing them and, and putting them together in your products. Yeah, that's right. So certainly we're still using our proprietary intellectual property, um, but then using third parties to make to our specification. Can you tell us then the, the plan going forward then for the Wodonga factory? When is it likely to close? Yeah, so it will happen this year. We're still working through plans, but we felt once we had made that decision that we would shut it, that we wanted to be open and transparent with our staff so that everyone could plan accordingly. But we would expect it to close this calendar year. Closing a a factory that, when it was announced, was going to be a $20 million investment in in Wodonga close to two years after it was opened seems like a, a pretty big change in focus for the company? Yeah, no, it certainly is. The I guess the, the big decision that's changed or the big facts that have changed in that is two years ago, we, you were unable to get a lot of the ingredients that we use in our food, but that has markedly changed. And so hence it allows us to have a more flexible, nimble model. A $20 million change in direction though, does that affect the company itself? No, not at all. 
you've got the the funds available to to take that kind of hit. Yeah, no, that's right. What happens to the staff that were working there? Yeah, so we are still working through those plans. I mean, there's a, a mix of functions on that side. So there's production, research and development, and then finance. Um, we expect the finance team to stay locally within the region. Um, with the R&D roles, we're looking at how we can relocate those into either our New South Wales or Queensland elements of our business. And then regretfully, the manufacturing jobs are the ones that will probably go. In terms of headcount, we expect it to be less than 10 people to be made um, redundant through this process. And then in terms of the change in focus that you were saying, so you'll be procuring a lot more of these ingredients on the global market. So is that a missed opportunity, I imagine, for, for the local grains production side of Australia getting involved in this market? Uh, they're, they're going to miss out to imports here? Well, and we'll still continue to develop with Australian suppliers, but when you're trying to do business up in Asia, it, it just makes sense that you source as much as you can close to source. Does this mean more imports in your products that you're selling here locally? No, I think the Australian products will still be mainly made from Australian ingredients. But can you talk, talk widely about this category then that you're operating in, the, the meat substitute type category at the moment? There's been a lot of talk, there was a lot of hype around it earlier on in its existence and, and a lot of the focus, particularly from business reporting, has been on difficulties in this sector of late. What's your take on, on this category itself and, and its future? Yeah, so I mean, a couple of years ago, there was a lot of hype in the category. I think it's brought a lot of players into it. Um, some of those players are doing well, some aren't. Um, our business in Australia grew at over 50% in the last year, so we still see the, the category quite positively. But certainly there is going to be a shakeout and consolidation in the number of players in it. So is it, has that been, I suppose, the problem when it was a very hyped category? There were so many new entrants and now we're in the period of, of deciding which ones will be here for the long term. Yeah, I think that's right. That is Tim York, who is the Chief Executive of V2 Foods, speaking there to Warwick Long. And you can read more about this up on our website if you search for ABC Rural. Gas company Santos has today released its full-year financial results. I'm joined in the studio by Dan Fitzgerald, who's been going over the numbers. Santos, has it been able to make a few dollars, Dan? It has, Matt. Uh, Santos has announced some record financial results uh, for the full year. Um, Santos, of course, it's got a few projects here in the NT, the Darwin LNG plant, the Barossa project, and it's got interests in the Beedaloo Basin. It has made a net profit after tax of $2.1 billion US. That is up 220% on the previous year. Um, now, those results, they're mostly down to significantly higher oil and gas prices due to the war in Ukraine and increased global demand for those resources. Um, here's a bit of what Managing Director and CEO Kevin Gallagher um, said running through some of those big numbers. The results for the year were outstanding. We set new records for production, sales revenue and free cash flow. Production was up 12% to 103.2 million barrels of oil equivalent. Strong operational performance, combined with higher prices, delivered a record $3.6 billion of free cash flow, up 142%. Sales revenue was up 65% to $7.8 billion, as strong base business performance positioned us to benefit from higher commodity prices. EBITDA doubled to a record $5.7 billion, and underlying profit was up 160% to a record $2.5 billion. 
That is Kevin Gallagher there speaking to shareholders uh, this morning. Uh, he also gave a bit of an update about some of the company's projects. Um, he said that the Bayundan gas field out in the Timor Sea, which feeds the Darwin LNG plant, it was it's nearing its end of life. It was uh, initially scheduled sort of to end uh, the end of last year, but uh, production was extended into the first quarter of this year. Santos is expecting uh, another couple of additional spot cargoes from the Darwin LNG plant. Uh, Those spot prices, that's where the really high cash Mm. is made at the moment. Um, And Kevin Gallagher also spoke about the progress of the Barossa project, uh, the gas field out to the north of the Tiwi Islands. Uh, This was his update. Execution of this project is well underway and was more than 50% complete at the end of the year. Manufacturing of the FPSO, subsea equipment and gas export pipeline continue to progress well. Drilling of the development wells, however, remains suspended following the decision by the Federal Court last year. I am pleased to advise that we're progressing all remaining approvals and undertaking community consultation using the guidance provided by the Court. This has included a series of community engagement sessions on country in the Tiwi Islands earlier this month. The sessions were designed to provide information as well as help Santos to understand firsthand from the local traditional owners and the community what is important to them and how they want to consult. We believe in developing strong, mutually beneficial relationships with communities wherever we operate. Kevin Gallagher, he is Santos's Managing Director and CEO. And the share market matters responded kindly to these results. Mm. Uh, Santos's shares up 3% today. Over the last five years, shares in Santos have gone up 37%. Uh, still on gas while you're here, Dan, a traditional owner in the Northern Territory making headlines at the moment because he is against the onshore gas industry and yet was pretty shocked to find his face on a website that supports fracking in the beetle what's the story here yeah matt so this was originally reported by the guardian a website calling itself the beetle economic alliance has been set up not quite sure who by it's framed as a community-led group in support of gas development in the beetle basin Uh, it's got no contact details on the website and apparently the only link it has is to uh, a page which links to a template email to send to mps in support of tamborans gas project. Okay. And one part of the site, it shows an image of Ray Dimakara Dixon from Elliot. He's been a vocal critic against the Beedaloo Basement's uh, development. Um, Hannah Eakin from the uh, Central Australian Frack Free Alliance says that uh, Ray, he was very upset to find that his image was used on this website. Uh, Ray's very upset that his image is being used like that. I mean, it's it's basic, it's, it's common decency to um, to ask someone before you use their image, and especially if they are a prominent um, advocate for the opposite of the position that you're holding, it's extremely disrespectful, and I would say outrageous for them to be using his image. Um, and it's yeah, it's it's a really it really just shows the lows that they're willing mm. to sink to. There is another website called backbeetaloo.com.au which looks similar. But the Guardian reports there are no links between the two websites. So what do you think is the motivation be- between, behind these kinds of pages? 
Um, I think it's about, it's a disinformation campaign. So, you know, they're just trying to, like, it really, what it demonstrates to me, like, this is not a very compelling website. Um, they only have three followers on Twitter. It's clearly badly written and it, it looks fake. But what the concern about this is that it becomes hard to know then what is truly the opinions of public of the public in the territory and what is stuff that's being dreamed up by marketing departments or liberal staffers, as Zach Beedaloo was. Um, and, you know, if, does that mean when we start to see comments on social media are they bots like it just it shows the issue around like a lack of a lack of integrity and a lack of um, trust that we can have in messages like this that are appearing on the internet that is hannah eakin from the central australian frack free alliance speaking there with uh, joe laverty and i should just add matt that um uh, there's been no reported link between tambor and, and the that website we were talking about okay on our text line dan a question here from someone who says how much tax does Santos pay? Have you got the answer to that? Uh, not exactly, Matt, but um, in its results um, media release put out this morning, um, I'll read a line from that there which has some information about that. It says, Santos paid $1.1 billion US in government royalties and excise, royalty-related taxes and income tax in 2022. G'day folks, I'm Darcy Skir, I'm the farm supervisor at Pinata Farms Catherine here in Manaranka. I'm a third generation farmer for a family owned business and company, so yeah, I'm probably one of the guys out there and yeah, you listen to the country hour. Matt Brown with you this afternoon. The boss of Wellard will be on your radio in a moment. And he says if cattle producers are hanging on to cattle in the hopes of getting $5.50 a kilo again, well, they're dreaming. Quite simply, uh, $5 plus is just not sustainable for anyone in the export live export industry. So we're looking for a trend change. And why is the price of crocodile eggs on the rise? We will find out. But first, let's go to the Weather Bureau. There's lots going on. Billy Lynch is there this afternoon. And Billy, can we start with some of these incredible rainfall figures for the 24-hour period. Yes, I'd love to. Good afternoon, Matt. Um, so let's start in the Vic River country uh, where we've seen uh, Bradshaw Range pick up 119 millimetres, uh, Malulu 103 millimetres, East Baines River 94, Shoeing Toolbore 90, and then a whole raft of sort of 40 to 80 millimetres. Um, but, yeah, over in the, the Roper River catchment, uh, so particularly between your Mataranka and Daly Waters, uh, we saw Gilnocky come in with 215. Wow. Uh, yeah, quite amazing and, and much greater than anything that we were forecasting. But some other good totals, the so Cave Creek Station, 124 millimetres, Lakefield, 100, Warlock Ponds, 95 um, and then even up around Mataranka, we've seen uh, the Roper River there reach uh, 56 and the, the homestead at Roper River, 59. And then obviously the Catherine region uh, has also copped quite a bit. Uh, so the bridge uh, picked up 28, but Tyndall Raft Base 48. And then it was mainly the upper reaches that copped the heaviest of it with Mount Felix and Mount Stowe reaching 90 millimetres. Wow. Uh, just care of social media, some of the rainfall reports and, and most of the good ones are coming in from that Sturt Plateau region. 
So Avago cattle stations celebrating 159 millimetres overnight. Tarly stations at 114. The team at Gorry had 56 millimetres. And Des at the Little Roper stock camp there near Matarenka, 137 millimetres in the gauge. Is there more of this to come, Billy Lynch? There absolutely is, yeah. Um, it's been a little bit slow to get started today. There's just sort of scattered showers around and since 9am we haven't picked up anything more than 10 millimetres but the the weather pattern's still there so we still have a, a weak trough near the north coast. We've got oodles of humidity and winds converging into that trough so the whole top end um, down into the Victoria River country again looks pretty primed for some further heavy rainfall overnight and again it does look like it's that Catherine Daly River uh, and then down into the the Victoria River country that could see the heaviest falls tonight and then the situation remains pretty wet into the weekend so from tomorrow we start to see more of a monsoonal influence so that should see rainfall increase about the north and the west coasts uh, as well as rainfall continuing through inland parts of the top end. And then the monsoon is probably going to strengthen during the weekend, so it's only going to promote further heavy rainfall. So we're really in for a bit of a, a wet period, and obviously the, the flooding risk, we're probably at the greatest flooding risk that we've been at all season, Matt. Mm-hmm. There is a flood warning, initial minor flood warning, in place for the Catherine River. What do people around Catherine need to know at this stage? I think the first thing they need to know is that there's no flooding expected in town. Um, so this is upstream. Uh, so at Nipmuc Centre, we did reach the minor flood level, um, which does mean along Gorge Road uh, there can be some flooding impacts. And I have noticed that the, the Gorge Road to the Nipmuc Centre is closed at the moment. So... Um, I guess with further heavy rainfall, that could prolong uh, the period at which the minor flooding along Gorge Road will continue, um, but uh, we're not expecting flooding in the town. Um, so that's that's the main thing people in Catherine need to be aware of. Okay. I'm just looking at River Cam via the, the Catherine Town Council. Looks like the river, as we go to air this afternoon, is sitting at about the 11-metre mark. Yeah, that's right. And um, it's definitely the, the highest that it has been yeah, all for the all wet, wet season. season. Yeah, yeah, right. Uh, I do have a question from the audience wanting to know the possibility of cyclonic activity come Sunday, Monday. Yeah, look, we're definitely watching that. Um, it looks like it's pretty low risk for any tropical cyclones around the Northern Territory. Um, but it, it seems like the, the West Kimberley or the Pilbara is an area to watch early next week. Um, and a low in the Gulf of Carpentaria is also looking probable. But um, at this stage, we're fairly confident that will move eastwards towards North Queensland. So, um, yeah, obviously with the monsoon, the risk is always there. But at this stage, we're fairly confident for the Northern Territory. There's, there's no particular tropical cyclone risk. And for Central Australia, over the next few days, much to report? Uh, Look, just some scattered clouds south of Tennant Creek at the moment, still looking at very hot conditions across the south. Um, Alice Springs currently 35 degrees, Yalara 37. But, 
yeah, trough will move into the southwest corner on Friday, um, bring a few thunderstorms to the Lassiter district, and then a few more thunderstorms over the weekend for southern districts. But more importantly, there'll be a, a bit of a southerly change come through and drop the temperatures down to the, the mid-30s. Okay, thanks for keeping us up to date this afternoon. No worries. Thanks, Matt. That is Billy Lynch there at the Weather Bureau. And just repeating, there is an initial minor flood warning in place for the Catherine River and a flood watch for parts of the northwest Bonaparte and Carpentaria. The catchments likely to be affected there include the Upper Victoria River, the Vic River below Kaukaringi, the Daly River above Douglas River, the Catherine River Waterhouse and Roper River. I saw a video late yesterday taken of the West Baines River out there in the VRD. And my goodness, the West Baines, judging from the video, looked very close to getting up over the bridge and smothering the Victoria Highway. And there's more rain to come. Nominations are now open for Farmer of the Year with 10 categories spanning all ages and stages of life on the land. Let's recognise the hard work of our rural leaders, innovators and farming legends and celebrate those in our rural sector who go above and beyond. You can enter yourself or someone you know at farmeroftheyear.com.au. Entries close this Tuesday. Proudly supported by the Condinen Group and ABC Rural. It's 12 past one on the Country Hour. The boss of livestock shipping company Wellard says the cattle industry is at a critical tipping point and any producer holding on to stock expecting live X prices to go back towards those record $5.50 a kilo stuff is dreaming. John Klepek, he made these comments after his company posted a half-yearly loss of $5 million US dollars. He spoke to Belinda Varischetti about what he thinks 2023 has in store. So uh, we're looking to an increase in volumes and a, a trend direction change in price. Quite simply, uh, $5 plus is just not sustainable for anyone uh, in the export, live export industry. So we're looking for a trend change. Uh, and, you know, if you look at, um, you know, where the markets have been before, when the herd has got to the size that it's getting to now, MLA reports, you know, 28.8 million or 29 million head, there's a certain amount of turnoff that is associated with that and that either finds its way into the processes and the live export market is is the clearinghouse for whatever's left over um, virtually. So if you look at the, you draw a line through that, uh, the volumes have to increase. The problem though is because we've had such a sustained price for such a long period of time, the capacity, um, especially in Indonesia in the feedlots is not there. Um, a lot of these guys have exited the business. So if all of a sudden you had uh, 100,000 head of cattle to send into Indonesia, they can't take it. Um, they just physically cannot take it because there are the processing facilities, et cetera, that are there have exited the industry. So, you know, we're in for interesting times in the next three or four months. We said in our release, um, in our results that, um, you know, we believe it's a, a critical juncture for the industry. And, you know, I would use the word uh, tipping point. Either the volumes come back and the price uh, reverts to, you know, where it's been in the past in similar circumstances or, if we do have a sustained price, you have more people leave the industry and um, where the live export industry then is in three, two, three years' time, I don't know. John, you're never shy from sort of predicting prices, what you think it's going to do. You're sort of saying, <laughs> you know, when it got to those heady heights of $5 uh, a kilo, that they're unsustainable going forward. So what do you think it 
where is it heading? What do you think? Well, as I said, we're at a critical tipping point. The trend has been high prices. Before, towards the last quarter of last year, we did see a dip in prices and activity was looking like it returned, but the prices quickly zoomed up back to where they were in the past. Look, we've got the situation now where you've got producers, you know, holding on to stock now because they think, you know, 550 is, is just around the corner. And, you know, when prices have been so long for the, uh, high for so long, people do get start believing that it's going to be that way forever. But like I said, we believe that this market cycle is no different to the past. And in terms of predicting price, I won't put a number on it. Uh, all I'll say is if you've got 50,000 head of cattle sitting in, a yard, in the yards in Darwin or in Townsville, which have nowhere to go because of, uh, local producers, uh, processors are, are full, uh, don't have the capacity to, to slaughter any more cattle. Um, and the live export industry um, has been uh, cut back in terms of their ability to take the extra uh, product because of the you know, sustained high prices. If you've got a, a herd sitting in, in, in the yards, uh, you tell me what the price will be. It's pretty uh, pessimistic, especially looking at the situation you've outlined in Indonesia with, you know, several people in the industry getting out because of, you know, dealing with those diseases that they have been with the lumpy skin and the foot and mouth disease. So yeah, look, what, what the, are, what are F- you thinking there, John? Well, the FMD and LSD is like, um, you know, the final, another punch when you're, when you're on the canvas uh, about to get up and then someone delivers another one for the industry. So the market will clear itself. You know, yes, it, it does sound pessimistic, but in the short term, it is. You know, we, we, uh, we, we have two of our ships not moving and everyone is waiting for volumes to return. And look, if you think it's not in the realm of possibility of, you know, um, prices dropping severely and coming back, all those people are holding out for that 550 coming back. I'd say just have a look at what, what's happened in the sheep industry where you've got producers that have been holding on to uh, lambs that, you know, now moving into mutton and uh, there is a, a difficulty uh, clearing the market and the live export market there, you know, with the, um, you know, the mandated um, phasing out of the industry in five years, people have no confidence to invest in that industry and therefore have withdrawn the capacity to to be able to take the, the sheep that have come onto the market. And I see similar parallels to the uh, what's happening in, in the beef industry at the moment. You know, if everyone wants a sustainable live export industry, they need to make sure all the players have a piece of the cake. As John Klepek, who's the executive chairman of Wellard, speaking there to Belinda Varischetti. As we go to air this afternoon, shares in Wellard remain unchanged. However, year to date, shares in Wellard have dropped 18%. If it's raining at your place this afternoon, let the rest of us know. Just looking at top-end radars, things are starting to fire up. Looks like it's pouring down at Birindudu. As we go to air this afternoon, there's some decent storms out in central Arnhem, up around Nullumboy and Groot. Big rain out that way and a large system sitting off the northwest coast. It would seem if it's rain at your place, let the rest of us know. 0487 991057. Uh, This tune, The Thunder Rolls, is by Garth Brooks. I hope you enjoy it on a Wednesday lunchtime. Up next, we'll find out why the price of a crocodile egg is on the up. The Thunder Rolls, Garth Brooks. Fancy 215 millimetres at Gilnocky Station on the Sturt Plateau. Uh, Here at the Country Hour, we've tried to call the station, can't get through. The phone lines might be washed away. And there's more to come.
Let's head to Arnhem Land now, where Indigenous rangers are busy collecting crocodile eggs. It's that time of the year again. Now, there are a few ways to collect croc eggs, but since a fatal helicopter crash in Arnhem Land last year, the practice of lowering an egg collector onto a nest by helicopter via a sling has been banned. You can't do that at the moment. Now, this hasn't impacted operations for the Bawinanga rangers there in Menangrida, who actually walk into the swamps to collect eggs, and they've got a permit to gather 3,000 eggs this year. In fact, ranger coordinator Jeff Brook says the ban on slings has seen the price of eggs rise due to shorter supply. Traditionally, we never did the slinging as range group anyway. All our stuff's mainly done on the ground and out of helicopters, but not actually slinging. So it hasn't affected us too much. Um, it's affected a lot, of the, a lot of the industry, but not so much. Our collection sort of remains pretty much the same as any other year. It may just mean that we get a little bit more money. What kind of prices are you seeing for the eggs this year? It's about uh, 5 to $10 up per egg on what it's been previous years. So... Um, it's around that 35 collection fee, and then we get around about 25 to 28 for the actual egg itself. And then there's a there's a there's a percentage that goes to NLC, and then is distributed out to TOs. And how has the the weather been this year? What's that been like for the, the rangers and for I guess the the amount of eggs that you're seeing? This year has been. A very different wet season for us in Manangrita. We've missed quite a lot of those big uh, monsoonal rain troughs. So, look, it's been spread out. It'll mean it'll, it hasn't made a, a, a huge difference. I think the crocodile eggs are uh, there a little bit later than they have been other years. Um, but as far as collection goes, it'll, it'll still maintain the same. It's just probably pushed out a little bit, our season out a little bit longer than what it normally would have been. How long does it take you to collect that many eggs and, and how big is the team there? Look, honestly, this year it's fairly, the, the crocodile egg collection is fairly new to me. Um, so this is something that's fairly new, but we are looking at boosting it. So our land, our land ranger team is eight rangers and our sea ranger team is five rangers. And our women's ranger um, team is four rangers. So. Uh, between the whole lot of us, we sort of chop and change, move around and land, um, chopper. And we also do some collecting by boat, which our sea rangers get included in. So, you know, quite a few jobs there, over over, over 20 jobs, um, you know, as part of that, you know, during that season, it, it keeps us quite busy. And generally, generally speaking, we can do it, um, you know, within, within a couple of weeks, not a stress. This year is going to push out a little bit longer. How much area do you have to cover to, to collect all those eggs? To put it into perspective, the area that we collect is roughly 40 kilometres by 40 kilometres uh, squared, pretty much. That's, that's sort of the collection area. Just give or take a little bit on that. Um, we're looking at hoping to try and extend that. So that's sort of around about half of our Indigenous protected area, our IPA. Um, so we're looking at trying to extend it into that that whole IPA area um, in, in, within coming years, hence why we want to try and increase the numbers a little bit as well, which will increase jobs and reduce crocodile numbers. And so is that a benefit as well then, reducing crocodile numbers? Absolutely. Absolutely important um, and, and requested by 
traditional owners that we do get the numbers down. Um, there's already a, a large, large number of crocodiles there, so it reduces that risk of attack you know, and or death, um, might I say it. And a lot of people might think, you know, collecting croc eggs, it's, it's quite a dangerous uh, task. How, how do the rangers manage to do that safely? Look, we've got risk assessments and take fires. We have team talks um, and we've got uh, safe work method statements. So we go through all the safety stuff. I've implemented a lot of that stuff. I mean, it's been there, um, you know, before I came as well, but I've implement, implemented a lot of new safety safety systems to help us um, due to the fact of, you know, certain incidences with helicopters and crocodile egg collection that have happened in the past. We just really need to dot all those I's and cross all those T's because at the end of the day, regardless of safety and safety of our um, employees is, is paramount. Though the croc eggs, once you've collected them, just how delicate, like how, what, what kind of size are they and yeah, what are they like? Well, about two times the size of a golf ball to give you a bit of an idea and a lot oblong shape. And yes, it takes a lot of tender love and care to get those eggs back. Uh, they've got to got to stay on exactly the same axis that you uh, take them from the nest. So from the nest to the incubator, um, there might be a trip in a buggy, uh, you know, a trip by hand, then trip in a buggy, then a trip in a helicopter, and then sometimes even a trip in a vehicle to get them to the incubator. So during that time, those eggs have got to stay on the same axis. So. It's very important that we, we take great care. So we mark the egg with a pencil, mark the axis, and that pencil mark axis stays uh, in an upward direction all the way so we can tell whether they've moved in transit. So it's very important for them to stay on that axis. This is Barwanunga Ranger Coordinator Jeff Brooks speaking there to Max Rowley, Indigenous Rangers, such as the Barwanunga Group, out collecting crocodile eggs. It's that time of the year. They're getting a little bit more money this year. But imagine this afternoon heading out into a remote swamp, walking in to grab eggs out of a croc nest. That would get the heart going. Time now to head to the sale yards. With all the latest prices from Dublin, here is John Traeger. Good afternoon. Prices improved this week, reflecting a better quality offering as agents presented 300 live weight and 50 open auction calves. Competition was generally good, with restockers and feeders more active this week. Yearling steers and a better quality selection sold from 398 to 402 cents, as yearling heifers sold from 314 to 364 cents. Grown steers sold in a wide range, making from 260 to a top of 404 cents, as grown heifers sold from 350 to 370 cents a kilo. Heavy cows sold at 264 cents as yearling bulls ranged from 348 to 368 cents with heavy bulls selling from 200 to 230 cents a kilo. This is John Traeger at the South Australian Livestock Exchange for MLA's National Livestock Reporting Service and the Country Hour. Thank you for that, John. In the live export trade, there are two cattle ships due out of Darwin Port over the course of the next week. Feeder steers to Indonesia are fetching around $4.20 a kilo. The heifers getting around $3.90. I see the Weather Bureau is going to update its minor flood warning for Catherine at 3 o'clock this afternoon. So keep listening to the ABC. Keep it rural.